This is Joshua Bell with my Tuesday morning Bible study group as we continue through the book of Exodus. Um, this is, uh, we are picking up at Exodus chapter 35, verse 4 today. Um, but I, I, Robert had, had a couple questions that I wanted to address to the group and to, to kind of talk about it. Um, part, part of these, we kind of talked about a little bit last week, but uh, not, not fully. So first question is, when Moses wrote the Ten Commandments, uh, there's this moment there that he has 40 days. Did he observe the Sabbath, or was it not a commandment yet? <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a good question. So the, the truth is, is it was not a commandment yet. We, we don't get that until uh, really um, the chapter 35, verses 1 through 3. And then there's this, if you don't observe the Sabbath, you must be put to death. But um, the problem with this is, is that we're thinking linear, linearly. This is circular. So uh, Sabbath is a religious practice um, that they were all supposed to be doing. And so when the writers of the book of Exodus are putting this together, they're going backwards. So they're saying, listen, you have to take Sabbath holy. You must make Sabbath holy. So they put that in right there, chapter 35, verses 1 through 3. Even so much as so, this is if you start a fire, uh, you should be put to death. The 40 days, always. Every time that you see that in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, it's a, it's a literary style that just says a really, really long time. There's not a specific amount of time. Now, I see that. But then you get into the festivals, which is a big question. And we haven't gotten into any of the festivals here next to this. But the, the festivals, well, we've had a few, but not, not many. Um, the festivals, there's a timeline. So like for Pesach, there's specifically 40 days. That's, that's one of those that actually has a timeline. But as far as if it's dealing with a person traveling or moving around, it just literally means a very long time. So like... Noah being on the ship for 40 years or 40 days or whatever, you know, that, that's literally saying a long, long time, a whole season, if you will. So um, that's, in other words, that's our translation. The, so it was not a, uh, a commandment yet. Um, this is not the, and the second question that you ask in chapter 34, verse 34 is this the temple Moses entered to speak with God? No, this is still, still tabernacle. Temple has not been built yet. Um, the uh, tabernacle is, is still part of their life. Solomon, uh, David starts the process. Solomon finishes the first temple. So, But the tabernacle hasn't been built either. Right, which is the next part of this thing. Okay. So the tabernacle is also not being built. So there's, it's, um, how would I put this? Um, it's a foreshadowing of event that hasn't taken place yet, implying that it's already taken place. So it's, a, a, it's an editing problem. They're assuming that the tabernacle was already built. But <laughs> if you follow the story, the tabernacle hasn't even been assembled yet. This is just stuff. These are... The best way to explain what we've been reading up until this point, and, e and even after this point, is there's this extreme dialogue between God, Moses, and the people. And the hardest part about this, again, is, is that 
we tend to think linearly, like well, there's got to be a point A and point B and a point C. <laughs> but Exodus is kind of written in like in a circle, like it's it goes from one place and then it comes back to it somehow, and and they always end up being repetitious. So the the tabernacle, for example, has not been built, but according to those that have written it, it's already been there. But Moses can't have built the tabernacle, right? Like it it takes a long time to put this together. There's no way they could have done it in the 40 days that Moses is on top of the mountain. Not to mention that they're dum-dums and Aaron makes them build a false god and then, then, then they destroy it and throw it in the water. And then now they have to strip naked and start all over again. And, you know, there's, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening here. So this is a, these are good questions, Robert, because the next question that you ask is, is why is Jerusalem so sacred when God was on in the garden of Eden, Mount Sinai and wherever the burning bush was. So Jerusalem becomes for, and, and, and we're, we're not really going to get this in the book of Exodus. So I'm, I'm also foreshadowing for you. It's David that does. That's right. David ends up taking them to Jerusalem and calling that the promised land. Um, we, the, the whole story between Yeshua or Joshua is to take over or inhabit the lands around Jerusalem. And they don't ever make sense from that point on, there's this, this geographical battle that they have over and over and over again with stuff going on. So Jerusalem does not become the promised land until much, much later. Um, and so, so there's a lot of struggle with this, again, because for us, we already know the end of the story. Um, in, in the book of Exodus, this is the, the beginning of telling that story. Um, so for like, for example... What we're going to read today, Robert, did that answer your questions before I go to the next yeah. piece? Okay. Yes, Larry. Um, can you address a little bit about Joshua? Joshua had to have be a man of faith, follow Mo Moses to be his spokesman with the Pharaoh. Uh, what? Why would he turn so quickly to, to lead people making a false idol to worship before false god? Well, it, the, it's a uh, Joshua is the one that precedes Moses. I think I think you mean Aaron. Are you talking about the? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. I'm I sorry. Forget it. Because Joshua has his own. Problems, but Aaron is—it's a, a good question. So they just changed the name. So Aaron, why does Aaron do this? But I think one of the beautiful parts that, in some of the commentaries that I've been reading, is, is that there was—and I'm making this poetic, Larry. This is not what the scholars would necessarily say. There's this kind of sense um, in rabbinical writings where we're trying to explain why the promised people keep messing up, <laughs> right? And then there's this poetic license that they take that, that shows our very humanity. Um, so what do you do when the, the cats are away, right? So Moses is up on top of this mountain and he's been gone for a while. Um, the I've, I've read some commentaries and some rabbinical writings about this in the sense that 
but they were afraid he was dead. Like they, they literally thought Moses had been eaten by wild animals or he'd been taken away by savages. Um, I've, I've read commentary that talked about the fact that they just thought that maybe Moses had abandoned them just like everybody else in the past. Um, and so what is, what is it that you do when you're stressed out? You go to what is comfortable and normal and something that you grew up with. It's the, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this, and, I, and I'm trying not to psychologize this. I can hear my professor saying, well, Josh, you're just trying to make them human. Well, I think so. I think, I think in this case, the reason Aaron builds a golden calf and asks them for all of their gold is because they all grew up with this idea of being worshiping other gods and that there was some truth in that. They have only been introduced to God, their God, again, for however long it's been since they've left Egypt, and now they've been wandering in the wilderness. I mean, we're talking 400 years at least that they've been serving the Egyptians. Um, so for me, Larry, I kind of look at this as, uh, for lack of a better phrase, comfort food. Um, you know, when I, when I get super stressed out and I get upset or whatever, I, I think I probably lean towards uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Uh, should I eat them? Mm, probably not, but they make me feel good. You know, um, I think Aaron grew up with this idea and I think it made sense for them. Yes, Pam. I, I kind of look at it like this. Um, a person who grows up in a house that is a, with an abusive parent mm. often grows up to be an abusive parent because that's all they know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's also a good analogy. Was, was Aaron Moses' son? Brother. 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 <clears throat> we don't know where he is in the birth order. They don't really ever say that. We, we, we assume that he was the youngest because Aaron stays around a while. You know, so Moses is supposed to be older at this point. But we know that he's got an older sister. Right? So Miriam. Miriam because we know that she watched the, the cradle <laughs> and that she's in these stories. So, so, so we think that Moses is the middle child, but again, it's, it's part of the story. It's part of the, let's get us understanding why, why Leviticus and Deuteronomy are so important. Why is Moshe such a big deal to us? Well, I was just thinking that sometimes, <clears throat> you know, in a family, not in a conflict necessarily, but how, if you're, you get upset with your parents or you get upset with your siblings or something. And, you know, Moses has been gone a while. And like you say, he probably felt abandoned. And yeah. They probably looked at each other and thought, okay, we've got to start over. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's, uh, there's, I've seen a lot of uh, writing. Well, not a lot, but I've seen writing that talks about, okay, well, if, if God's not here to protect us, we need something that will. Mm -hmm. they, <laughs> they needed to appease the crowd. That's right. Yeah. He absolutely is a politician. <laughs> he, 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 he does it to appease the crowd. And they all understood these false golden calves. Mm -hmm. So, see, these are good questions. This is, this, is, this is the struggle that we have with the book of Exodus because you, you all have the rest of the story. Like you, you've heard the bigger parts of the story after that. The, the problem with this is in Exodus, they're, they're just literally starting out. And so we're kind of going back and rereading this where um, 
for the people that are hearing this for the very first time, they're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And they probably got as confused as we do about how many times did, did Moses build the Ten Commandments? Are there 10 or are there actually 14? Right? Because last week we talked about the fact that God gives him commandments, but they're not exactly the same as the first 10 commandments. So does he have 14 or does he have 20 or does he have, you know, so they had the same questions that we do, but the, the, the difference was at that time that, that there probably would have been more of a, okay, that was neat. And they, and they would have definitely not heard it all at one time. They would have, they would have done it like we are today where they would have, okay, let's talk about this today. And the rabbi would read the story or talk about the story and they would have the same discussions that we are today. So did that, did I those found, questions? I found more books. There was 15. You dropped one on the way down. <laughs> yeah. That's in a uh, Holy Moses. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, 15. Oh, that's in history of the world part one. That's right. 15. Yeah. Mel Brooks says that. So, uh, yeah, no, and, and it's and it's funny. Mel Brooks is is a perfect example of real Jewish humor. Like to them, that's not blasphemous. It's it's a it's a it's a funny idea. I, I have fifteen commandments that God has given to me, and, and he trips and falls and drops one. I have ten. I have ten <laughs> commandments that God has given to us. You know. I think Charleston Heston only had 10. That's right. Charleston Heston <laughs> only had 10. So, uh, uh, so I, I love, I love Mel Brooks's interpretation of those moments. And it's just so funny to watch him because uh, the, he is such a great Midrashic comedian. Like he has this really great idea. What if, and then he just makes it a joke, but it's so that we can have it not be so aggressive. That's the hardest part about reading these is if you think about it, this is really aggressive. It's really up in your face. And Midrash is supposed to make it easy for us to have these conversations. And I think that's what Mel Brooks does very well. But uh, um, anyway, so or, or did. He doesn't do those things anymore. But um, okay, did that, did that help? Uh, no, but that's okay. Because these slaves, it's not that like they didn't know God. They had they had uh, they painted their doorpost with blood on the Passover. If they were still doing yeah. it, yeah, yeah. It's not it's not like they didn't know God, and and they they've given them up so easy. So, but that's okay. Well, let's just move on because I'm still going to have a problem with it. <laughs> no, and that's okay. I I I have to say this though, Larry, because it's it's a you're you're right on the precipice of crossing over into this in this really awesome place, as well as being in an awesome place that you're in right now. Part of the idea here is, is that we have to recognize that even in that story, even with the, the blood on the threshold, they're still underneath the, fair, the Pharaoh's empire. So the, this being, the blood being passed on the door was being told to them by their elders to do that. So these elders that were in their movement in Egypt are being saying, you need to put blood on the door. And, and there was no question. So the, the conversation about them not knowing God, I, I must, I, I misspoke in that way, in the sense that it's, they didn't know how to worship that God. They didn't know how that God was supposed to work in their lives. They had forgotten these things. 
And so when the elders tell them, here's one of those things that you have to do because our God that we are reclaiming will protect you. There's a moment of truth for them that leads them to where we are today in our passage. So by the time, so you want to go again, you see how I keep saying we go circular. So that moment of Pesach, that Passover moment, that, that place is that moment where they now are reclaiming their one true God. It's, uh, it would be like our Lord's prayer. We say it every week. We Some of us think of it as something sacred, but most of the time we just do it because we've always done it this way. It's not until we say the prayer and our life is changed because of the prayer that we ever actually understand its power. So God for them at this point has not exuded power. He has not released them from their bondage for over 400 years. And now, all of a sudden, this guy Moshe comes into the place and says, here's what we have to do. God has told me to do this. And like you said, there's a blind faith to this. Okay, we'll put the blood on the door and see what happens. And then there's all these things that happen. Um, so, yes, this all has to deal with what we're reading right now. And, it, um, and it's hard because at the, in the back of our heads, we're thinking, well, yeah, but they've always believed in God. yes. And they had to work for the Egyptian gods. So those Egyptian gods were 100% in their daily life. Uh, did it mean that they worshiped them? No. But like, like we were joking at the beginning of the, this conversation, uh, I knocked on wood, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a tradition. It's a superstition. Do I believe that it's going to change anything? No. But it's just something that I've always done. So for them... The golden calf is the thing that they've always done. It's comfortable to them. That doesn't answer your question. However, it helps spur that conversation a little bit deeper down the road. Hey, Josh. Yes, Robert. One, one other thought. All these people don't have to be Jewish. Right. Where, where's the huge assumption that these people are all Jewish? That It just says slaves. Um. It just says slaves, and they say they are of Hebrew descent. Okay, whatever that means. So, because the Egyptians did the same thing the Jews did. If they're not from us, they're from Canaan. <laughs> <laughs> or they're Jebusites, or they're Parasites, or they're uh, Amorites, or, you know, Hittites, whatever. As long as they're not us, they're something else. They're the Ites. <laughs> This is good. This is a good discussion. I'm really enjoying it, which really helps for us as we start reading today. But I want to make sure that we have those questions answered because you guys have obviously been stockpiling them. Okay. Well, I, I want to I want to start at chapter 35, verse four. Um, this is a this is an interesting passage of scripture because once you all have this idea of what you're supposed to do. Think, think of Exodus as like a, the beginning of a capital campaign. Here's what we do for how we worship God. Now we need to build the sanctuary or we need to remodel the sanctuary or however you want to look at it. And so all of these stories are kind of leading up to, okay, now that God has told us what we're supposed to do, what's the most important thing that comes after that? Where do we begin? Where do we begin? And the, and the biggest question everybody asks is, 
how are we going to pay for this? <laughs> I mean, like, that's you just you just can't avoid it in, in church life at all. Like, how how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to build it? Um, and so there's this interesting conversation that takes place, and um, this I I don't want to go on record to say this, but since we're recording it, it's on record. <laughs> to to me, I think this is an interesting liturgical way of looking at a communal understanding of stewardship. We've always heard about tithe, right? For those of us that grew up in church, we've heard about a tithe. I think the tithe was an afterthought. Like, I think it was, uh, okay, no one's giving anything anymore. So let's make make sure we understand what a tithe means. You're supposed to give your first fruits. I think really what the hope was that the community would work together so that they would never, ever be burdened, like, or one person would be burdened more than the other, right? So if everyone put together into this big pot, no one would be technically burdened. And at the end of the day, we'd still be able to accomplish what God put us on our heart. The problem with this is, is there's not a lot of biblical proof of that. There's conversations and there's and what ultimately ends up leading to in the Hebrew Bible is the understanding of the tenth. So I'm making a big deal out of this because I feel like this is a really good liturgical conversation about what giving, what they hoped giving would be. Um, and obviously it didn't work physically, right? I mean, here we are in 2022 and, and we're still talking about uh, the difference between general offering and tithes and capital offerings and, you know, memorials. And I think this is a very simplistic, beautiful way of understanding how to give for the, the, the response. Does it work? Well, we'll see. Here we go. 35, chapter, chapter 35, verse 4. So Moses said further to the whole community of Israel, right? This is what the Lord has commanded. Take from among you gifts to the Lord. Everyone whose heart so moves them shall bring them gifts for the Lord. Gold, silver, copper, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, fine linen, and goat's hair, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins, and acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for the aromatic incense, lapis lazuli, and other stones for setting, and for the ephod and the breastpiece. Now, just before I go any further, did any of your translations, I mean, some of the things might be different, but at the beginning there, in verse 4, did any of your other translations sound extremely different than mine? Bronze for copper. Just and different stones or names. onyx. Yeah, yeah, lapis lazuli, and this one is onyx. Um, yours says dolphin leather. Ours says durable leather. Nice. I don't know where they've got dolphin leather at that point. Anyway, they're in a desert. That's a good question. Well, all of this and just listening to it, it was all something that is from your house. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have taken care of the ranch and the sheep and the goats and the cows and and you have gone out and you've made the wool out of it. And, And so it's part of yourself that you're giving. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and to me, it's very evident that it's. Did you catch that part in verse five? Did you say a lot of different things there? Mine says, take from among you gifts, the Lord, everyone whose heart so moves them. Is that what you're Ours saying? Ours says willing. Are willing. This one says willing. Which, you know, I mean, if we're being technical about it, it's from your heart, willing to give it. 
feel like it kind of minimizes the translation. The, <laughs> but it, at the same time, it's still, when they translated into willing, it was, willing was something that came from your inner being. Not, mine, mine says a generous heart. Oh, a generous heart. <clears throat> nice. What translation do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to look. <laughs> the, so, so right off the bat, verse 5 says, and, and as Kim alluded to, these are coming from their home. These are coming from their place. And labors. From Isn't their own it? labors. Um, I love I love the imagery. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a better stewardship message than some of the other things that we read in Hebrew. Do, do, I, do I discount them? No. I think that this is a beautiful uh, preemptive conversation about how we start to do this. Let's keep going. So, for example, in verse 10, it says, And let all among you who are skilled come and make all that the Lord has commanded. For example, he says in verse 11, the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its clasps and its planks, its bars and the curtain for the screen, the table and the poles and all its utensils and the bread of display, the lampstand for lighting, the, its furnishing and its lamps and the oil for lighting, the altar of incense and its poles, the anointing oil and the aromatic incense, and the entrance screen for the entrance of the tabernacle, the altar of the burnt offering, its copper grating. Uh, I'm not going to read all of these, but you're, you're getting the <laughs> idea, right? Like this is, I'm calling upon the people here, the, the artisans, the, the skilled workers. It's now our opportunity. If you don't have these things, we still need your physical bodies to help us put them together. <laughs> See how beautiful that is? And he spends a lot of time in detail as to what that means. Uh, and then in verse 19, the service vestments for officiating in the sanctuary. That's not really the best translation. Uh, but anyway, the sacral vestments of Aaron, the priest, and the vestments of his sons for priestly service. So now here's what the response was. So the whole community of the Israelites left Moses' presence and everyone who excelled in ability and everyone whose spirit moved him came, bringing to the Lord their offering for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the sacred vestments, men and women, all whose hearts moved them, all who would make an elevation offering of gold to the Lord came, bringing brooches and earrings, rings and pendants, and gold objects of all. And verse 23, and everyone who had in his possession blue and purple and crimson yarns and so on and so forth. Verse 24, guess what they're going to start off with? Everyone who would make <laughs> gifts of silver or copper or brought them as gifts from the Lord, everyone who had in possession the case would for any work of the service and uh, brought that. And all the skilled women spun with their own hands and brought with what they had spun in blue and purple and curtain. And verse 26, and all the women who excelled in that skill spun the goat's hair, and the chieftains brought lapis lazuli and other stones for setting for the ephod and for the uh, breastplate, breastpiece, and spices and oil for lining and the anointing oil and for the aromatic incense. Thus, verse 29, the Israelites, all the men and women whose hearts moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord, through Moses, had commanded to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And Moses said to the Israelites, see, the Lord has singled out uh, by name Bezalel, Bezalel, yeah, Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He is endowed him with the divine spirit of skill, ability, and knowledge in every kind of craft 
and uh, has inspired him to make designs for the work in gold, silver, and copper, to cut stones for setting and to carve wood and to work in every kind of designer's craft and to give directions. He and Oholiab, son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan, have been endowed with its skill to do any work of the carver, the designer, the embroiderer in blue, purple, crimson, yarn, and fine linen, and of the weaver as workers in all crafts and the makers of design. So let then Bezalel and Ohiab and all the skilled persons whom the Lord has endowed with skill and ability to perform expertly all the tasks connected with the service of the sanctuary and carry out all the Lord had commanded. And we'll just pause there for a second. So then IV also has um, the ability to teach others in verse 34. Yeah, it, it really should have that in here. I don't know why it doesn't have that in the um, in the translation. Um, and, and it's not in my commentary why that part is not in there. But the, but the NIV gives us a, a little bit of a better discussion. Because if you do that, this is verse 34 that they've left out the part and to teach others. Um, now you're setting aside, not only are we as a community doing this, we're now setting aside people that we would consider deacons. Uh, not elders, right? Because elders do the spiritual work of the church. Deacons do the hands and the feet footwork of the church. So now you have these deacons uh, that would be teaching others to do the work in this place. But they're skilled, right? Like they, this obviously these two guys have a lot of gift in um, stone cutting and carpentry. Uh, this other one knows how to do, how to make designs and knows how to make tapestries. Like there's, there's an obvious... I'm trying to be very careful not to be supersessionist here, but when you, when you look at Paul's language of the spiritual gifts, he lists them based off of leadership roles. You have these people that have these leadership roles that should be leading the church, right? That's not the first time we've heard it. That's my, my only point here. In this particular conversation, you're having this discussion with an idea that uh, these people in the community are rallying around each other. This person's not necessarily in charge, but is lovingly being a shepherd, guiding them in the ways of making this place of worship moment. Uh, I was thinking when we talked about those people before, it said God gave them the skill. It does say the Lord has chosen and he's filled him with the spirit, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. But it doesn't really say that he he made them able to do that. Right. And the other one I thought said that. Yeah. So the only time that we hear that language is when we get Paul. Okay. Paul says, well, God gave you this gift. There's another place that I think you're right earlier on in Exodus that God gave this person the skills to do this. And I don't remember what that one was, but I, I think it was when he was talking about the Ark of the Covenant. I think it makes it real clear that it's your free will. It mentions or kind of refers to that several times just in this chapter. Mm -hmm. He's not commanding you, but if you're led. <laughs> yeah, gives you an out. Huh? Yeah, yeah. But I think he. It also, to me, he says that 
everybody has a skill or yes. has a mm -hmm. gift mm -hmm. or has a gift to give. If you don't have one of these particular items, mm -hmm. you may still show up and come. Yeah. And I was going to say, the list is long. Yeah. <laughs> you all are going to think I'm crazy on this, but I look at this as a, the, the, the only thing that I've ever been able to see a church truly understand this is as if we're painting. <laughs> I know that sounds weird. Like, but I, I've been on, you know, a dozen mission trips. If you have this lady that's, or a, a gentleman that's like 90 years old that says, I want to go on the mission trip. And they're like, and they're, but I'm probably too old. And I say, no, you should come. And they're like, what? And I said, well, we could set you up however you want. Like if you want to sit on a bench and paint a corner of the wall, then you sit on a bench and you paint a corner of the wall. There's, there's a, this imagery puts it together in a way that says there is always something for someone to be able to do regardless of age, social status, or economic place in life. Um, to me, even physical ability. Yeah, there's nothing here that there's somebody nothing. can't do. <laughs> this is this is everybody and everyone is invited. Notice that language is being used too. You're, you're basically being invited to participate in this. And these people, uh, again, I like the NIV translation better there, are, are also teaching people how to do that. I... <laughs> One of those people that came with me on one mission trip had been a businessman their whole life and they probably never lifted a paintbrush, you know. And I, I know that sounds weird, but like, uh, we, oh my gosh, this is flooding back. We went to uh, Westside Christian Church in New Orleans right after Katrina. I'd already been there for three weeks with search and rescue, trying to help people. And, and we had to rebuild this church and the churches in Virginia all rallied together. And we got 42 people to go and why 42? Cause that's all you can fit on a charter bus, you know, and <laughs> we get all the way down there. And this, this, this businessman who was very well off said, well, what do I do? I said, well, here's a hammer. I need you to pull the nails out of this board. Well, how do I do that? No problem. And I, and I had to show him. I remember having to sit down and show him how to, how to paint a wall, uh, how to move tin. Like, you know, how, okay, we got to move this tin. His best day was this when we got to tear down houses. Like, you know, like, because there's no thought process in that except for there is. But, you know, oh, I take a sledgehammer and ram it through this wall. Yes. But make sure the power's off. You know, like stuff <laughs> like that, you know. Uh, but it, to me, this is that experience. Um and he probably left at the end of the day feeling very... Oh, he was changed. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was changed. And his, it was a whole different experience. After, I think after he came back, I mean, he'd already been retired. He, he started working with Habitat for Humanity in Richmond and did all kinds of cool stuff from there. But I think this is a perfect example. I think, I think a lot of times churches get so caught up in the just the nitty-gritty of Sunday morning giving that we tend to forget that it's... That's just a portion of our life right and i think this is the best stewardship message in the bible um, that i that i've been able to find um, and i think again trying not to be supersessionist and just say well this is all about jesus jesus speaks more about giving than he does anything else in the gospels it's just hard to ignore um, he he speaks about it but it's not designed to say well, we want to make sure that we give enough money to pay the electric bill, right? <laughs> For them, it, it was a part of their life to give, as Karen so aptly put it, 
from their free will. Mm -hmm. You give this because God has moved you to do this. This is our example. Um, you want to say, put me in, coach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's what this whole message is right here. And I cannot imagine a church not being, you can't function if you don't have people give of their time and their talents and their free will. I mean, where would our church be today if we did not have volunteers that uh, gave of their time? I don't know. I, I mean, one of the beautiful parts about being in this congregation is, is that I really have a, a, just a menagerie of people that do things. Uh, I have not always been that lucky. There were times that Josh was the, the, the mover, the shaker, and the, the candlestick maker, you know? I mean, like, I, I had to do everything. Um, didn't have to. Didn't necessarily know how to ask, especially when someone said, don't ask me. I've already been there, done that, mm -hmm. you know? And you're like, well, yeah, but we, did you, did you stop breathing? Like, did God <laughs> tell you you're done? Like, I don't, you don't know how to ask that question. Those are the issue here. Go ahead, Pam. When I've heard that before, especially with Bible school, things like that, people say, well, I did that when I was young. It's somebody else's turn. I uh, I, I uh, always think, are they going to say that to St. Peter when they're at the gate? You know, <laughs> that, yeah, I did that all when I was young. I didn't have to anything when I was old. <laughs> well, and I, I think, Pam, the, the part that's beautiful about this passage is somebody taught someone else how to do it, right? So... That, that that there's a lot of credence to this. Listen, I, I'm not doing this of my own free will. <laughs> I'm doing this because we have to do this. So that then it, the challenge then becomes, how do we equip others to do the ministry that we know that we've been called to do? Like, I, I agree with you 100%. It's, it's really hard being on, on, on my side of the table because it's I get that on everything, you know. Because you still have to pass the torch down right. because you're not going to be here forever yeah i don't know what it is about you know. people that we think that we're going to live forever like i'm going to do this until i die awesome what do we do when you die i don't know it's not my problem yeah so it's a it's an interesting conversation to have in this moment and and i i yeah it's it, again interestingly enough from our conversation earlier just like the hebrew bible is circular so is the nature of church um, imagine what the church would have looked like the energy the enthusiasm they have to build a new building just just think of how awesome that is churches never have to worry about where the funds come from they never have to have worry about having enough labor when a church feels the presence of god enough to build a building, it shows up. We did that with our addition. Yes. We went out on faith. And it just happened. And it happened. And we paid it off early. Yes, you did. Mm -hmm. So this is this is this is this is that kind of energy. And I think that's if I was going to turn this into a sermon series, I would say this is the this is the type of energy that we're talking about, not just what we give on Sunday morning, not just what it is that we do at CWF in the food pantry. This is giving of my whole being as I feel called. Um, 
like I said, I, I could spend several weeks on this passage of scripture just because it's amazing. Um, and and think of think of the nature of these people as they're writing it, and they're hearing it for the first time. They have left Egypt where everything was taken care of for them. Was it a good life? No, but they didn't have to worry about stuff. Um, now they're out in this wilderness experience, and Moses is supposed to be guiding them into a new place. And the language that they're hearing is, is God put this upon their heart to put all of this together. And they responded without one sense of grumble. Now, they, they grumbled about everything else before, right? Yeah, we don't true. have food. We don't have water. We don't have this other stuff. But here, nope, not a <laughs> single moment did they hesitate. Well, don't you think, since they were talking about basically building the tabernacle I and mean, getting stuff ready to build it and stuff, it gave them more of a presence of we have arrived yes. type thing. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's no need to grumble. We're here. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> thing happens with us. We, oh, we, that's exactly right. we, we okay. don't have we don't have the money for a new organ. So we, let's don't get one. And then oh yeah, I have enough money to buy that organ. Here, let me give it to you. And and it comes forth because there's a need for definite something specific that you're putting. You don't you may not give daily or weekly. I'm sure that person whoever gave that money did, but you may not give daily or weekly, but you feel a calling to do something that makes an impact. Yeah, and if you have if you have purpose, and, and again, I I think part of the the struggle that we have in the in the Exodus passage of scripture, they they have they have arrived in the point of here is our purpose. We now have to have a place to worship God. And like you said, Pam, they give without a hesitation. We see it, we see the need, we're going to fill the need. But it's not done. That's the hardest part here. The, the worst part about this being a stewardship message is, is that we think, well, once that's done, we're finished. <laughs> There's always something. There's else. always <laughs> something else. Now, I, I, I have to say this because we're going to finish this passage of scripture between verses 2 and 7. So in 36, 2 and 7, you got to hear this. This is, the, this is how we're going to finish this. Moses then called Bezalel and Ohat Liab and every skilled person whom the Lord had endowed with skill to carry and, and carry out. They took over from Moses all the gifts that the Israelites had brought to carry out the tasks connected with the service of the sanctuary. But when these uh, but when these continued to bring, yeah, but when these continued to bring free will offerings to him morning after morning, all the artisans who were engaged in the task of the sanctuary came each from the task upon which he was engaged and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than is needed for the task entailed in the work that the Lord has commanded to be done. So Moses thereupon had this proclamation made throughout the camp, let no man or woman make further effort toward gifts for the sanctuary. So the people stopped bringing their efforts had been more than enough for all the tasks to be done. We're going to stop there until next week, but that's, this is, this is the end of that story, right? Notice how the Levitical priests had said this. If we all give, we will have an abundance at the end. And it would be great. You could hear the Levitical priests standing from, if they didn't have pulpits, but if they had a pulpit, standing <laughs> in front of the congregation and saying, I want to be able to tell you to stop giving. Um, I want you to give with all of your heart, soul, and mind, 
your body, everything that you got. Um, and I want to be able to tell the group, okay, now you can stop. <laughs> you, you can almost hear this language. Um, but as we find out, as, as we continue to read these scriptures, the, this, this continues throughout the Hebrew Bible. Um, and, it, and they never embrace this idea again. <laughs> once. They do it once. Um, this, this idea. And I, again, this is why I love it as a stewardship message. And then the conclusion I always read in verse 7 of chapter 36 and say, well, that, by the way, the reason we're doing this is I want to be able to tell you all one day that you can stop. Uh, but there's no such thing. <laughs> you know, that implies that God's mission is done with us. Yeah, there would always be something there to do. There will always be something to do and for people to use. And, um, things things that are needed. You know, we part of our leadership retreat we had in January, the conversation of what would it look like if we did things outside of the box and outside of our building, you know, it, we were more in the community. And that was on purpose um, because I think today's culture uh, it's it's not moving into the sanctuary, it's moving out of the sanctuary. Not that we get rid of our sanctuary, that's not what I'm saying, but the, the, the more effective congregations that I've seen are the ones that are, uh, for Sunday morning worship, are doing mission projects, uh, or they're doing something out in the community rather than necessarily in the pews on Sunday mornings. It's a fascinating concept. Um, but it doesn't necessarily equate a difference from what we do for worship. It's just this conversation of how we do it is, is being changed. So uh, I know we started a little bit late, but I, I still, I think still want to respect your time and, and kind of end it around 10 o'clock. Are there any questions or comments before we stop the recording? Here. Okay, now I will stop the recording here. We'll start again at verse uh, 8, chapter 36, verse 8, and, uh, and um, some of this we're, we're, we're going to skip. I'm, I'm not trying to say that we don't need to read it, but it's a lot of dialogue of how they build these things, and unless you're uh, an artisan craftsperson that likes to build Arch of the Covenant and lampstands. I, I don't necessarily <laughs> want to go through all the details. So uh, uh, well, I'll stop the recording.